Hello, this is Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. How are you lot doing? Well, I hope. Today's episode is in two parts, with me talking to Rachel Long and Raymond Antrobus. But before we hear from those two, I just wanted to remind everyone that there is still time to vote for us in the Saboteur Awards Best Wildcard category. Just go over to www.sabotagereviews.com and follow the links to Saboteur Awards and their voting form. Do that before April the 30th. And if voting is your thing, then you can vote for us as your favourite podcast in the British Podcast Awards by going over to www.britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote and entering Lunar Poetry Podcast. And I will love you forever. As always, you can follow everything we're up to at silent underscore tongue on Twitter and at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook, SoundCloud, Instagram, iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like what we do, then please tell people about us. It helps a lot. You can maybe even give us a review on iTunes or wherever you access your podcasts. On to the episode. First up, I'm talking to Rachel Long, who is a poet and facilitator for Barbican Young Poets and leads the Octavia Collective based at the South Bank Centre in London. We talk about her work as a facilitator and the effect that has on her writing practice and our shared aversion to social media. Here's Rachel. Hotel Art. We're eating roses on a rooftop. There's a block of wood between us, no doubt antique. There's an age gap, yeah. But did we need to add 600 years? They serve clouds here too, I say. You say, let's get some for a light starter. Wink. What kind of clouds are they? Fluffy or black, I ask the miserable waiter. He doesn't answer. The roses come dethorned. Fish finger versions of the predators they were, I say. You say, stop playing with your food. Excuse me, I rise. Make the sparkling water shudder in your empty glass. You only notice your plate. Contorting myself three ways in the toilet mirror, I decide I won't look like this forever. I don't even look like this now. We discuss kids. Maybe it's the wine. Maybe it's because my belly is beginning to push against the bones of my dress. You say, I don't think I'll identify with a brown sun. Dessert is air from a porcelain pump. What if he has your eyes, I dare, after another glass? Back in our borrowed bathroom, I mouth abort with the help of the stem. All the hardly anything foams out. You pretend not to have ears. With my eyes closed, you don't. I join you on the balcony. You hold me from behind as if arresting me from the night. We are as many stories up as our age gap. You lift my dress. I shoulder width my legs. Is love not this? Gripping a fence in the sky. Thank you very much, Rachel. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you for Um, having me. I think I've fallen into this habit of beginning the podcast now by letting my guests introduce themselves and I think we're going to continue that today so if you could just I'd hate to break a a new tradition exactly yeah bad luck exactly it's about two interviews old (laughs) don't 
I am Rachel Long. I am a poet. I am also a facilitator. I occasionally curate poetry events and I am the leader of Octavia, which is a poetry collective for women of colour. And we are housed at the South Bank Centre. Because you, you do so much facilitation work and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about Octavia especially. It's important to remember that we are in fact individuals and we have dreams and hopes of our own <laughs> and not only those of the young people under our tutelage. Mm. So maybe mm. you could explain a bit about your own writing and where you draw your influences from. Thank you. Thank you also for recognising that. Sometimes you don't know whether you feel selfish for feeling like you've got so much of your work then becomes about the collective or about the groups that you lead or facilitate for. And your writing naturally does not suffer. Suffers is quite a strong word, but it, you just have less time because you're doing other things with the poetry and it's the same it's almost the same energy as well it's like the poetic energy and so once that's uh, or for me once that's spent on writing with or reading with or editing other work I don't have that same energy left over for myself my writing at the moment I'll be honest I think it's always important to be honest about your writing because it wouldn't be helpful if someone else is suffering and they're like oh everyone else seems to be writing loads they're probably not. I'm not writing as much as I would want to at the moment. I think that's mainly due, due to time and all the other things that I have, which are all blessings, and I'm not saying that I wouldn't want them. I just need to find ways that I can it's do It's important, though, I think, as an artist, to recognise that you are you can voice those things and you're not necessarily complaining about the other no, stuff you've got to do. No, absolutely because I, not. I, I had a feeling of guilt for a long time that, that I... I didn't want to blame the podcast mm -hmm. for getting in the way of the writing, which is plainly the truth. It, it, <laughs> it, does, it does get in the way. But for a long time, I didn't feel like I could say it because I felt like I was moaning mm -hmm. about this really amazing thing I got to work mm. on and I was getting funding for and I was getting to meet lots of brilliant people. And I think it's probably doubly worse for you because you work with a lot of really talented young people and it's it's that thing of like well you don't want to seem to be complaining about spending so much time with yeah, them. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. No, well, But it's just the realities yeah. of... Yes. You're trying to make a living as an artist, isn't it? You Definitely, know? yeah. You know, if we all you know, had a silver spoon, then would we do this, uh, all the other work? Um, I'd like to think that I still would, because I believe in it. Or would you just, you know, be a hermit and then go off and then send your manuscript out from a cave somewhere because you don't need to go and do anything else? I am reading so much, and I feel like that's, that is writing in a certain way, and it's a way for me at the moment that I can still do that on my way to doing other things so that I don't feel like I'm not a poet anymore, I'm a, a just a facilitator. Because there's that as well when I, I feel when I'm not writing as much as I would like to, going then into a workshop and you know try and inspire young people to write as well, you feel like a bit of a fraud. I feel like a bit of a fraud. I feel like a fraud all the time. <laughs> Most like, of the time. Yeah. People say to me, um, so this is this is really interesting, all this stuff you're doing. I'm, like, I don't, I'm just, you just walk around guessing at how to do everything. <laughs> no, you're pretty in it. You're a good guesser then. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do kind of suffer with that. Or you, you get kind of, what I find now is like the usual questions, you know, what inspires you? And your answer in your head is nothing at the moment. Um, and you have to like, you know, kind of reel off the answers. 
or when you're asked perhaps how much they should be writing in a you know a particular day or week I, I always think this might just be me trying to make myself feel better but if you're not living you're not experiencing if you're not experiencing you can't write Completely. Um, I mean some people do write from imagination and stuff but I've I think most people write from experience, don't they? Yeah. And so if nothing's happening to you, <laughs> I sometimes feel like nothing's happening. No, I sometimes... <laughs> um, yeah. That could be a dangerous place, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you have to be a certain person, but I used to know a particular person. They just would almost invent things. So they'd, they would go to the pub with two friends that had kind of just fallen out, but under the guise that they were that he was going to sort it out for them. Yeah. But really, he just wanted something to write about. You could tell he kind of really did stir certain situations. Well, it's a danger, isn't it, becoming addicted to drama? Yeah, yeah, he you definitely know. was addicted to drama. You've got to write your Edinburgh show somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it can be really bad. I've been in certain situations. I'm like, oh God, I should really get out of here. And I'm like, let's just see it through. It might yeah. make some good it's writing. Make a good yeah, like he, he seems like someone to get away from. Don't worry, you'll get a good poem out of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's dangerous. Uh, <laughs> Tinder swiping your way to a first collection. <laughs> swiping your way to a first collection. <laughs> Amazing. They look awful. Definitely meeting them. <laughs> Since we briefly mentioned it, we should probably talk a bit about the facilitation work that you do. We'll mm. probably start talking about uh, Barbican Young Poets first and how Ooh. you got involved mm-hmm. there and working with the... Uh, now infamous on the podcast, Jacob Sandler-Rose. He's amazing. He's so incredible. Um, I am so lucky to have met him. So I met Jacob through Apples and Snakes in a workshop where we, a small group of poets, small group of young poets were asked to write about Deptford, which was really cool. And even though I didn't grow up in Deptford, I was dragged to that market many a time on a Saturday. So I I met Jacob through that. Um, and he invited me to be part of his collective, Burn After Reading. As my mentor, and seeing the way that he is with so many of the young people that he works with, I'm lucky not only to have met him, but also to have learnt so much from him in the way that hopefully I can also do some of those things that he does when I am then facilitating for Barbican Young Poets or, or Octavia, you know? Like, there's a level of love that he has that is completely unashamed, like the, the time that he gives up and the it's patience. It's infectious as well, isn't it? Yeah. So how did you get involved with Barbican Young Poets um, then? So after working with Jacob for a while, so being part of the collective, maybe being a more slightly more proactive one than, than other people, He'd invited me to facilitate like in schools with him because he goes around so many schools in the country. So I had done a bit of shadowing with him as well. So I think I must have, you know, maybe one day he just looked at me and be like, yeah, she could she, she could be my assistant tutor on, on Barbican or Poets. He invited me to come on board as the assistant tutor. So, so yeah, that's how I started. And then he invited me to do this year's as well, which was also another honour, you know, that I didn't completely mess that up. It's been an absolute joy I've learned a lot. At first, I think it's a little bit difficult to kind of straddle. I'm like, should I be writing right now? Or should I be, I don't know, moving around the room? <laughs> like, you know, so it, that's, that, that is quite hard to navigate in and, the beginning. And your role within the BYP there, are you teaching on that? Is that how it works? So I've got a couple of friends that were on last year. Okay. And so my very good friend Anna Khan is on this year. Oh, and I just Anna love her Anna is on fire. Yeah, but... Mm. I have the sort of friendship with Anna where we just 
don't talk about poetry, just go and eat pizza. Nice. <laughs> Which is the best kind of friendship. So I don't really know how the sessions work. No. <laughs> or, okay. You know, I, I sort of mm -hmm. know that there are provocations and given to the, to the people involved, but maybe you could say a bit more about mm -hmm. the structure of the classes. Yeah, sure. So that's what's really helped me as well. How you plan for a longer term program, you know, there's not, it's not just a one-off workshop and then everyone's kind of like, oh yeah, I'm going to write forever. And then you never see them again. So it's over fortnightly sessions over six months. So it runs from, so applications open in summer and then the selection process finishes in October and then it runs until March and there's a final showcase. So we meet fortnightly um, at the Barbican. It's a gorgeous place and I think especially for, for young poets, you know, just to go up in those lifts and just be like, you know, I'm an, I'm an integral part of an institution such as this that must do incredible amounts for, for your confidence as a writer. So Jacob does, Jacob leads most sessions he encourages me to lead because he'll always give you space as well. I've led two of these for this session and that's completely open. So he's kind of like, would you like to do this? And I'm like, yeah, let's do something. He's like, okay. And he doesn't, you know, he won't try and control where we're like, okay, I need a plan by. And he doesn't. You know, like there's a, there's a real level of trust there, which is, which is really nice. 80% is writing, it's generating um, new poems each time there's a new provocation and that will range from writing from the poems in the pack, the, the BYP uh, poetry packs at the beginning of term are legendary, right through to a workshop that I led was from a book of macro photographs by uh, Lennart Nielsen and writing about a super, super, super close-up of the heart or what a cancer okay. cell looks like. We also have two guests on the program. So this year we had Hannah Silver, who led a brilliant performance workshop. She's, she's amazing. She is amazing. So we were talking about Anna. Uh, she made Anna read. She kind of gave like poetry diagnosis to kind of break, uh, firstly, like poetry voice, which no, nobody actually in. Uh, BOP, I think is, I don't think they're guilty of, but also the way that we read a poem and are familiar with that way, uh, feel safe in the way that we read it, and never try and challenge any other ways. So that, that's how I read that poem. Even when I was just reading Hotel Art just now, I was like, "Remember, Hannah, why don't you read this? You know, like you've received some bad news, you know." And um, so she had Anna up there, and Anna was reading just one of her incredible poems. And then she made her read it. It was about self-belief or I think kind of low self-esteem and, and managing that. And then Hannah was like, okay, stop, stop, stop. Um, in a respectful way. Okay, now I read it drunk. And then so Anna was like, drunk? Okay. And then how it changed the piece. I'm a bit jealous. I haven't, I'd love to go in a workshop with her. Uh, just to it's talk so about good. the sound I, of poems I then had so, her yeah. in for Octavia. Yeah. For in, uh, Actually, maybe we should show. then um, we should talk about how this work has influenced your work, yeah. with Octavia, and then totally. I think yeah. that's 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 a that's a prime example. You know, having Jacob inviting Hannah to do that performance workshop, being invited by Southbank for Octavia to do our, sh our Handmaid's Tale response show again for Woman of the World. When was that, two weekends ago now? March the 12th, last, wasn't yes, it? Yes, last happened. weekend. Yeah, it wasn't wow. long ago, was No it? wonder I'm still tired. Yeah. Okay, I can still be tired. Yeah, so I was like, get over it. <laughs> just to give a little bit of context, so Octavia is a collective of women of colour yes. writing, young, 
Is there an age limit to it? There's no age limit. I was going to say limit. young women of colour, they but, are, but they just they are all happen young to be gay. Because how it started, no, nothing to do with any kind of ageism no, 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 that no, I no. have. Just when it started, I wasn't really allowed to advertise it publicly. It was kind of B. Colley, the literature coordinator at South Bank, um, just being very generous with the, with the space that she was giving us. So who I invited were the people that I knew. And because of the age I am, uh, people in my particular poetry circle, they just happened then to mm. be young. And was this an initiative started by the South Bank Centre? Did they they approach you? No, I went to B, I think on one of the hottest days of the year, and we sat outside. And so, you know, in South Bank in the summer, they've got that water feature, and then you kind of run in, and then it starts, and then it goes back down again. Um, So I remember looking at that, because she she texted me, and she was like, okay, I'll be down in, in a minute. And I just remember looking at that like... Could I possibly, you know, just kind of walk around the perimeter of that and just get a bit cooler before this meeting starts? But I didn't. I just sat there sweating off my makeup. And I went to be, I had met B a year before that on a young producers program to organise National Poetry Day Live, which they have there in association with the Poetry Society. So I'd met B through that. And when the idea, Jacob also was instrumental in the shaping of Octavia. I would always and, and still do go to Jacob with a particular plan or idea or kind of because he's so practical he'll give you your idea back in this kind of neat pros cons list and pose questions to you that perhaps you didn't think about when you've got it you know there's a certain romanticism and a certain whirlwind of an idea any idea I think um, and you don't look at it from all the possible angles so I'd had the idea of Octavia before it was ever Octavia, but knowing that I wanted a group for women of colour, and then I thought, oh, should it just be women? You know, will that not really be accepted? Should it? Actually, I, I do like some guy poets too, some. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. You know, maybe it can just be uh, an open space. But no, I, I think I knew in my gut that it had to be what it is. So I had gone to him and he was, and I'd been to him with this idea so many times, you know, he'd give me questions about it and then I'd gone back to him and he's like, he just kind of just said to me one day, he's like, Rachel, just do the damn thing already, just do it. And then so I got in contact with B because I love the South Bank Centre. I feel like I artistically grew up there. I love their programme. I love what they put on. I felt like the prestige of a place like that would be good for a group like Octavia, you know, I don't, I still don't It's very important, I think, also, isn't it, for the kind of group you were putting together to be in an established space, I think. I think so, yeah. Um, I hope so. And I think I only realised that later. I like that space and I want it to be there. And I didn't think of, you know, what what is that as a political action saying about, yeah, a group of women of colour meeting in in another established space. I mean, just for example, in London, I mean, you could have easily have gone to, for example, the Albany Theatre, they would have been really up for that kind of idea. But it's important publicly, I think, in the public perception to not be somewhere where people go, oh, of course you're there. That's the kind of thing that they do. If you're suddenly in a space where it's not provocative, I don't quite mean it like that, but I suppose for people, it, some people it is provocative, isn't it, you know? Yeah, no, <laughs> totally. I don't think, okay, we've got half the attention that we have had if we were in a cafe, a lovely cafe in South East London. I, I, I just don't think we would. No. But that wasn't done, you know, I'd love to think that I did that on purpose. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't. I just loved that space and I thought that, yeah, I want to invite 
about 20 women of colour, where it also can fit that many in a, in a room all at one time. So I went to B and I was really worried that perhaps she'd be like, oh, I'm not sure. And she was just like, I love the idea, just straight off. And just the, the worry way, it's like, wow, this is going to actually happen. And she was like, okay, just send, send me dates of when you'd like that room. I can sort that out for you. She was incredible. She, she continues to be incredible, you know. So she was the one who invited us to do the Handmaid's Tale first off. Um, so Handmaid's Tale? Yes. When did I see that performance? Was that October yes, last October, year? October, you saw yeah, it at so the October London October 2016, mm-hmm. and it was easily the best spoken word show that I saw last year. And, you know, oh, thank you. I see a lot of stuff. As you said, it was performed again a week ago. Are there plans to, to perform it again? Well, I was reading Nima from the other train here, um, and she did say she'd like to talk about it. So perhaps, I don't know, um, my nerves. I don't know how, how many shows my nerves yeah, can yeah. take. <laughs> I'm a bit, yeah, I'd have to get. It was odd to see you as Mother Hen at that oh show rather than, than, rather than the performer and to see that, the nerves that you're really... trying to absorb from the performer so they don't have to take it on. It was, I'm not going to say it was nice to watch because <laughs> it's not, it's not nice to watch your friends you go through it. <laughs> no, I can't recommend that show highly enough. So what we'll say at this moment is the best thing to do is just to follow stuff on social media if anything comes up then i'll be i'll tweet about it it'll be on our facebook page and i'll mention it in future podcasts so everyone should keep an eye out for that it will be on the south bank center site so octavia doesn't have twitter doesn't have facebook that's purposeful that's political yeah i I wanted to mention that so what what was the thinking behind that often oftentimes i feel that social media all social media platforms aren't particularly good spaces for people of colour or for women either. Get a lot of just strange people just by their all in when nobody nobody asked you. Um, so one of our first shows at South Bank Centre was in the Poetry Library and we were invited to respond to unheard women in the Poetry Library collection. So, so the, uh, black women poets for Women of the World last year. I remember doing an interview afterwards and it was filmed and then it went up, you know, like two, three weeks later. And just some of the comments at the bottom of that was like, it was like, oh, I don't even know where she's, where she's, how she can call herself a poach kind of speak properly, you know, just because, you know, I speak in my very own South London way that I've learned to love after a long time. I don't know if I love it, but except, you know, and it's like, okay, I can try to speak another way. I could totally put on a voice if I wanted to. But I won't be being honest if I if I speak like that. I find that hard. I still say asked and find it really hard to pronounce certain words because I'm just used to reading them and not saying them out loud. I must admit, I mean, as much as you try to always listen to the words and listen to the art, I really find your voice comforting. <laughs> it feels like I'm at home. <laughs> it was, it just... It was our first performance. It was completely sold out. They, I'd never seen the Poetry Library that packed. I don't think the South Bank had ever seen it that packed. And it really did hit home. It's like, oh, oh my gosh, this is a, this, I think, I think this could be a moment in literature where people, and also people that I didn't expect to be there, were there. You, they're not only there, they were there early. You know, they'd bought their bodies to support what we were doing. And that was really important. And then just to have that completely or, you know, try an attempt to undermine that with people who 
don't know anything, who still think you have to speak in a certain way to be able to write or you have to, you know, I mean, know what way they want you to speak. After that, I kind of put to Octavia, because I will never make decisions for the whole group. I will always ask them, even though it's quite painful to wait a whole week to get an answer back sometimes. I'm like, I should have just made this myself. It's like, no, because that wouldn't be equal. I put it to them and, you know, some people were like, yeah, whatever, I don't, I don't really mind. Some had, you know, like whole essays, like publishable essays on the benefits of being on social media for women of colour. They're excellent, I just need somewhere to put them. But, you know, the common consensus was that we shouldn't and there's no point actually. And what's what I didn't realise then, it was just a reaction to that, I think. Just how freeing it can be when you don't have to be like... And that's another benefit of being at the South Bank is that because their marketing team is just so uh, yeah, and, vast. Yeah, and also the be- one of the benefits of being in the collective is those that feel that yeah, they want to sure, talk right? on social yeah. media. It's not like there's a band they can talk freely and they can use exactly. that if that's something they're interested in. And I've noticed a lot of members of the collective are very vocal on social media about pushing yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Um, and some not, and that's yeah. fine. I mean, because, I wish yeah. I could live without social media for the podcast. I'll be honest with you, but because it's just it feels emotionally draining mm. to have to it do it. such a it's just a real I find it a really fake way of communicating me, you mean yeah. me too a lot of the time but I know people a lot of people don't feel like that you know a no. lot of people absolutely adore being on Instagram mm. for example um, which we're now on I don't have this so I wouldn't know but yeah no that's but it's not really nice I take pictures of poets and stuff I, I have public money, so I have to reach out yeah. to people. Yeah, um, that's different, I suppose. And I sort of have an obligation to find avenues to communicate with people. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. And I just, I, I think personally, I'm not that taken with, with social media. I realise that it, no, actually, I don't even like that. I don't like now that we're living in a place where it's almost like if you don't, your career will suffer for that. Yeah. That I've I've heard of poets being dropped from certain gigs because they haven't got Twitter and the event, you know, is like well we're just going to get someone who shouts loudly on Twitter because they're going to make more people come to yeah. the event. We you know we're yeah. we're artists we're not Absolutely, marketing yeah, yeah. managers you know so that's that's hard but yeah so as a collective it's so cool we do not need feel the need to then take pictures to tell people what we're doing and I think actually it's worked. In our favour as well, which is also completely unintentional. Mm-hmm. There's not a secretiveness, but it's a curiosity. It's like, oh. There's also some, a lot to be said about the fact that people need to be there to see it, don't they? You know, if you want to experience what the collective does, you have to come and sit sit on a seat and I think watch that's it happen. Quite, I think that's really powerful, you, you know? It's not just yeah. a, a case of liking yeah, know, and, re- right? and retweeting. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to get off. Yeah, if you want to support it, you know, get, yeah, see it. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that's being lost, you mm-hmm. know, I... You just, yeah, you can on, like something. On that note, listeners can follow us on Twitter, Instagram. <laughs> well, we'll be doing for all, those all of that Octav- love it. We'll be doing Octavia's uh, marketing work for them. <laughs> so we'll, I'll be posting updates. Um, there'll be links to places where you can check out Octavia, Barbican Young Poets, and Rachel. So rather than giving out web addresses now, there'll be hyperlinks in the episode description and, and I'll be tweeting stuff. Hmm. Unfortunately, the clock is ticking. I think we might have to take a final reading. Thank you, though. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. It's been fantastic. Apples. Send me over our pics. I want to laugh in bed. I text her. They bleeped through two days later. 
We are posing six months apart and blurry. Last night, I missed my train by seconds, so close that part of me did catch it and waved from the window to the other half, still fuck panting on the platform, tits play-doing out of a shit bra. I couldn't sleep for an hour and a quarter, the exact time between the two slices of me reaching home in separate taxis, each driven by a brother who co-owned the firm. Today, I am doing nothing but assuming the recovery position. In my favourite outfit, a jumper with no knickers, the perfect hot-cold combo like a bowl of baked crumble and ice cream. I am glossy magazine educated. So I have known for a while now that my body is an apple, similar to a pear or a carrot, but different tasting, rounder-bellied. The supporting theory is I bruise so easy, I worry it's skin cancer. No, the doctor says again, it's just your dark skin. She recommends scar serum. When I was bored after service, with mum still counting the collection, then insisting on sweeping from altar to street, I'd sit in front of a white pillar, Bible open in lap, and I'd wake dream a brown woman with tattoos having rough sex in a toilet cubicle. I can't remember the man's face or his body, whether he had either, only that he needed his love to impact. Nor can I remember what I named her, something beginning with N. When the mum of my then best friend said her daughter wasn't allowed to play with me because I was another N-word, meaning mum went round in her dressing gown to slap her silly with her tongue, then came back to scatter the kitchen and shred dad's guardian for not sticking up for us for never saying anything. After that, I had a sleep dream that I grew a bright green face, granny smith-hued and high-polished. And even though I was green, I was the most beautiful woman in the world. I had the best hair and even did humanitarian work. I was interviewed about both things each night for TV. Thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. No, it's been an absolute pleasure. That was the wonderful Rachel Long. And if you can do, check out what's going on with Octavia Collective. They're a fantastic group of writers. Next up is Raymond Antrobus. Ray's another poet that I met at Verve Poetry Festival in Birmingham. And it's a bit ridiculous, really, that we've only just met, because we both live in London. Though we live either side of the river, so perhaps it's not that surprising. We spend a lot of time talking about the influence of Derek Walcott on Ray's work, as he had sadly passed away not long before the interview took place. This led us on to talking about Ray taking a relatively fresh look at his Jamaican heritage and what it means to do that from London, and how these things have shaped his new pamphlet, To Sweet and Bitter, out through Outspoken Press. Here's Raymond. This poem is called Scratch Light. It's a poem that I think is 
directly inspired by Derek Walcott. Derek Walcott, a poet from St. Lucia, wrote, wrote about Caribbean history um, and about the people of the Caribbean and empire. There's a, a line that I came across in a Derek Walcott poem which inspired this poem and the line goes, the heart is circled by sorrows and bitter devotion. And also I should say that the poem is also inspired by a friend of mine called Phoebe Boswell, who is a drawer and artist. This is a poem which was commissioned um, by Jay Bird Literature Festival. The theme was light and I had to write about a light at a certain time of day. So the time of day that I wrote this poem was at between two o'clock to four o'clock in the afternoon. Scratch light for Phoebe Boswell. Southbank security guards wake anyone sleeping as if they don't want us to miss who we might bump into. Like how I bumped into Phoebe today, sat at the tall window, drawing a man called Anwar. I pull an extra chair and sit next to them and talk about maybe moving out of London. Everything about Phoebe stays on the paper. Curving Anwar's left eye, she journeys the pencil in a circle, finding something but losing something else in every new expression of Anwar's face, which is softer by the time he says, I miss Barbados, my ex-wife, my children. He tears a Tate and Lyle sugar sachet as Phoebe's hands press harder into his face. We could all be crying or laughing as the sun whips through the window overlooking old stone banks and insurance offices. We both hear the etching while watching how Phoebe loosens the grip on her pencil. Anwar asks, who is holding me at night? I tell him half-truths. No one. I wake alone. I miss my ex, my grandmother, my father. There is nothing in my cup to spill when I tell him that grief has moved me back in with mum. Anwar tells me about Swaziland and Switzerland and places we could all be if the right things stayed together. Phoebe finishes sketching the shape of the wall and the light and shade of his eye. And now she looks up, seeing both of us for the first time as men in the scratched light. Thank you very much, Ray. Thanks for joining us. Thank How are you, you doing? Thank you, I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. If you want to just introduce yourself sure. to listeners that don't know you. Sure, cool. So my name is Raymond Antrobus. I am uh, I'm a poet. I'm a poetry educator. I'm from Hackney in East London. I'm half Jamaican and British. I'm a hearing aid user. Do I define myself as disabled? Someone asked me recently, I said no. I define myself as differently abled. All of those things play into what I write about and how I experience the world. Maybe we could talk a bit about Derek Walcott and the influence it's had mm. on your writing. So Derek Walcott passed away a few days ago and that hit me hard, man. Obviously, I didn't know Derek Walcott personally, but he was an icon. He was a figure. He was a symbol of a time. And his books, his plays, his poems were on the shelves of both my parents, of both my mom and both my dad. So there's always a presence there, even though I didn't start reading Walcott till much later. And I mean, probably... White Egrets was the first collection of Walcott that I read from start to finish, and that was 2011. But I'd always known individual poems and stuff like that. But when I started writing and thinking about, I guess, my Caribbean heritage 
and trying to explore what that means to write about the Caribbean from England. Because uh, I did spend some time in uh, growing up in Jamaica. I used to go every year and uh, visit family. It's kind of what I realised is so many of those poems that I wrote thinking about the Caribbean are so clearly inspired by Walcott, so clearly guided by Walcott, that his passing for me means any Caribbean writer living in the Caribbean or in the diaspora should be now thinking about what Walcott means to them. Mm. At least that's what I'm doing. And um, I've called up a few other friends who are also from different Caribbean islands, you know, just to ask them like, whoa, here's a moment. Here's a moment. Let's, uh, let's, let's talk about that. And I'm still kind of processing that. So I don't really have any answers. But it's a point where I'm really excited to explore in my poetry and, and, and my life and otherwise. I suppose for me and any listeners that aren't aware of Derek's work, is there one thing that you would point to as a something that's a must read as a beginning or, or is that a too simplistic question? I think I think that I mean the poem the famous Walcott poem that's doing the rounds is his Love After Love poem, um, which I think is on the GCSE syllabus as well, which is a poem about him his marriage breaking down and him kind of returning to himself so a lot of people love that poem and start there but like you actually to be honest it wasn't until fairly recently that i started reading walcott periodically like looking at full collections and being like right when he was 20 he was writing this when he was 30 he was writing this in fact a good place to start with walcott is there's a paris review interview with him in 1995 when he just won the nobel prize for literature and um, he's 55 years old and the interview is just him like talking about just everything just every you know beyond his life and beyond his poetry and beyond his painting and beyond his thinking and his family he's just talking about he's talking like a sage he's talking like in a way that i don't know i and i hadn't actually read that interview until um, Hannah Lowe put it on Facebook and uh, and I've actually written bits of it in my diary and I'm going to put it on my walls kind of little mottos so yeah I think that's a good place to start actually yeah so you have a pamphlet coming out yeah soon yeah when people are listening to this interview it will be out it'll mm-hmm. be out on the 10th of April through Outspoken Press yeah. and that's called the pamphlet is called Too Sweet and Bitter pretty much a collection of poems which I primarily wrote about three four years ago when my dad passed away and I returned to Jamaica to you know tell the family that this has happened these were his last words but what came out of that was realizing that there is an even stronger uh, historical and emotional link to Jamaica and England than I'd realized and the moment when i realized that was going back to um my aunt's house in montego bay walking around in 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 this market and there's a museum called the sam sharp museum and outside the sam sharp museum is a noose uh and a kind of little square pit and a a memorial or placard that says this is a spot where samuel sharp was hung by the British in, I believe it was the late 17th century. And so you go in to this museum and the first thing you see is a huge map. First of Liverpool, then of Bristol, 
Men of London and, and the docks there. And it was such a moment for me for that to hit me. You know, I was like, wow, you know, if I'd been, how did I not know about this in this way? And in some ways, I think my dad had told me and I think I had known about these things, but I think probably with the passing of my dad, there was a new meaning, a new connection that I had to make sense of. Because I think losing my dad, I felt like I'd also lost access to a part of my culture, living in England as well, and only occasionally being in Jamaica. So I wanted to know what that meant. Then following the kind of <laughs> things that have been happening as of late in, in, in England with Brexit and with xenophobia and the, the quote new normal, the normalisation of all of these things, realising how hardly anyone understands that, that history, the, the kind of colonial history, um, which is this huge abstract thing to, to so many people, but actually it's, it's living, it's live, it's here in our faces every day, which is why in the poem, The Scratch Light, I had to say, you know, when you're, when you're looking over the Thames and you're seeing these buildings, you know how many of those buildings were insurance companies for slave ships, you know, and they're still standing. So yeah, that's one, I guess, angle of, and, of the book. And, and when you're in Jamaica, was there a, a, an obvious difference in people's relationship to that these ideas oh is, yeah is that what you were seeing um or? yeah i mean like in terms of england in terms of the people that i come up come across in conversations i have with people in jamaica about empire colonialism i mean i think it's it's really dormant to them just to people just living every day uh you know there's taxi drivers who say things like hey you know you're from england yeah jamaica was better under british rule come back you know we want the queen back and my reaction to that was always one of <laughs> I don't know one of like assuming that person's ignorance it's like well do you really how much do you know really about that colonial period I mean that creates this whole confusion in my mind because then I'm like well uh, who am I to, to, to you know to, to check this guy who's living on the island who survived you know and is living so I yeah I try not to not to I guess arriving in in Jamaica and only look through it through a Western lens and and you know because that that's also a kind of colonial. So this is it. It's it's a complicated, multi-layered history to look at. For me, there has been no better way to write about it than poetry, mm. because I feel like when poetry is done well, it allows for contradiction. It allows for questioning. It doesn't start on the premise of, I have an answer. It's the premise of, I felt something, I've experienced something, this is what unfolded. Mm. It might be time for a second reading. All right, yeah, wicked. I'm going to read this poem because it's something that I'm still working on. I'm not, I don't think I've finished it yet. So this is a draft. And this poem I wrote in New York. And I was in New York and came across this article, a news article, which 
was talking about a man called Daniel Harris who was profoundly deaf and he's driving and he apparently was speeding and the siren, the police siren uh, goes off to make him stop. He's a deaf driver, he doesn't hear the police siren, he's pursued and as, he's, as he eventually stops he gets out of the car and the police officer because of the way he was moving his hands shoots him dead. I mean I just had to write about that. Um, just to say before as well I speak British Sign Language, Sign Assisted English which is a little bit different to British Sign Language um, but I'm also trying to pick up a little bit of American Sign Language as well so all, all, all three of those languages are different. This poem ends on a word in American Sign Language so this poem is called Two Guns in the Sky for Daniel Harris. If you are a deaf driver, you might not hear a siren. You might not see a police car behind you. When Daniel Harris stepped out of his car, the policeman was waiting, gun raised. I use the past tense, though this is irrelevant in Daniel's language, which is sign. Sign has no future or past. It is a present language. You are never more present when a gun is pointed at you. What language says this if not sign? But the police officer saw hands waving in the air, fired, and Daniel dropped his hands, his chest bleeding out onto the concrete meters from his home. And I am in Brooklyn Coffee House in New York reading this news on my phone. When a black policewoman walks in, guns on her hips, my friend next to me reading the comment section, Black Lives Matter. Right now, there is nothing we'd say out loud. There is nothing we'd sign, even though the last word I learned in American Sign Language was alive, alive. Both thumbs pointing at your lower abdominal, index fingers pointing up like two guns in the sky. Thank you, Ray. I mean, like one, one thing uh, I would say about that poem as well, it's interesting being uh, someone who performs poetry and someone who writes poetry. And when, when I'm beginning to think about how do I incorporate a physical present language like sign language into poetry? Because one of the questions for me in this poem is, wait, does this work if you can't see me? This is a poem that needs a witnesses. Mm. That idea in and of itself, I think, is such a powerful and important premise in the way that, like I just said, like, I need, like I'm interested in engaging with people in a live setting. I mean, I'm interested in hearing people responding as well, as opposed to, and I still love doing this, of course, like writing page poetry and thinking about what shape it takes on, this, on, on, on that page and that, you know, and all, everything that comes with that. But in a way, that's a different body. So that's, that's something where I'm thinking about now with poems like this, because everything I write, I want to, is me trying to connect. Yeah. Well, it, it's a similar set of thought processes to go through with, we actually don't feel like my podcast is a very good way of engaging with people either because it's sort of, you know, you miss out on the, the physical engagement I have with guests right? and the conversation. Right. I really want people, the audience to be present with that, which of course they can't be. But then but, isn't it about, so, you know, actually I was just talking yesterday uh, with a friend of mine who makes radio and loves radio and was talking about how, man, 
when I was younger and I, I didn't watch no TV, it was all about radio. And what I loved about the radio is that it's, nothing stimulated my imagination more because I can hear the voices and then I'm picturing them. Oh yeah, I've, act I've actively rejected filming stuff. I've decided not to do that. One, yeah. because it's, there's a, a level of comfort and relaxation that you can offer a guest immediately yeah. without t sticking a camera in their face. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had guests on in their pajamas and stuff, you know, friends yeah, of mine, yeah, yeah. we just hang out and it's really chill. <laughs> um, and, you know, you wouldn't know that they're sitting there in their sweatpants yeah. and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm, I've always been a bit much bigger fan of the radio than the television. I think mm. the television's too obvious. Mm. It's too, literally too in your face. There's too yeah. much going on. I feel there's a lack of live interaction with people rather than a visual yeah. aspect, I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you were saying with the, you know, because that, the ending of that poem you just read is very visual. Yeah. Although you describe it really well. Yeah, yeah. There is that immediate feeling of like, oh, you, you are missing out on something. Yeah. It's purely audio. Yeah. Actually, when I saw you read it, Verve, I was right at the back and I couldn't see your hands. Uh -huh. So that uh, adds an aspect to good. it as well. Yeah, it seems to be coming up a lot in the podcast. About it's an interesting thought process to go through about engaging with audiences, regardless of talking about issues around accessibility mm. and stuff. The way you use the stage, mm. the way you use your words, you know, how recognising there's a difference between an audio recording with visuals or yeah. without visuals. Yeah. There's obviously a difference between somebody seeing it on the page or in fact someone else reading your poetry out for somebody right. else. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all multi-layered. Yeah, no, you know, a few years ago I was um, asked to read a poem on, on uh, Radio 4 and that was such a interesting experience for me as someone who was, you know, I've, I've done, I, I did speech therapy for 10 years because I couldn't speak properly, I'd quote properly. Uh, I would slur my words and so I had to do all of these exercises, all of these mouth exercises around articulation. Now, what was interesting about being on BBC Radio was a producer that I was working with, uh, I won't say his name, he came up to me after the recording, recording and he said, you slur your words. And that was such a thing to say to me as someone who's done all of this speech therapies that thinking that I'd kind of got rid of that and moved past that. And he said he could hear it almost instantly. So what he started saying is, he said, I need to go back to speech therapy. My poem wasn't used on the radio. And I went back to speech therapy and, but that moment, I mean, I, I, it was such a, it was, oh, it was cutting. It was so cutting. And that actually, that's one thing that made me think, you know, cause like you said about having a love of radio, I love radio too. I've always got the radio on, even in this room here. It's something that I, I dreamed of being a part of, being asked to be on radio for, was uh, wow okay you know it's it's, it's it's a landmark i mean not going getting on because of like i said before being differently abled was something which yeah i don't know it, i'm just saying it, it it brought up a lot of questions about where i belong who am i speaking to and how am i connecting with people am i connecting with people also um, brings up a lot of questions which we were trying to sort of bring up and answer when we started the podcast was the narrow-minded view of what is accepted as broadcastable you know yeah uh, somehow because you don't fit a particular model for whatever reason you know and this is a purely audio one you know that we're talking about now yeah somehow you're not then able to be packaged for a 
a pro pro for a program. It's just because that feeds into this idea that then producers believe that you'd be happy to have that advice. Yeah. You know, yeah, because exactly. of course you want all, all that you could possibly want to do is yeah. fit that model and be packaged yeah. in that certain way. Yeah, and then we, we end up in this circle. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. vicious one of people being folded into boxes. You know? I think that one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons I gravitated towards spoken word was for its freedom. It gave me a platform to be able to be heard and seen on my own terms. One of the frustrations of spoken word is also part of what I just said, the freedom, because I think sometimes there's too much freedom. I think that there isn't enough legacy building in terms of spoken word. What do I mean by that? I mean, there's a lot of younger poets who don't seem to realise kind of what's come before them. Derek Walcott says something that I really resonated with where he says, originality cannot exist without an origin. You need to know an origin before you can be original. A lot of conversations I've been having with younger poets recently, you know, I often say, who are the poets you admire? Who do you look up to? And they'll only mention contemporary poets, poets who've come out in the last three, four, five years, um, or po poets who are already hyper-visible um, because of YouTube, because of the media. It's like, well, <laughs> there's, there's a wealth and a range of poets that use music, for example, that aren't being looked at. Poets like Ursula Rucker, Space Ape, Mike Skinner from the streets. I classify that as poetry personally, even if he doesn't himself. But it is, it is. I would make an argument for it. I think it's important. That's something I really admire and appreciate about speaking with you and being on a podcast is that this is a document. Well, it's the most. Uh, fundamental idea behind the podcast is to document what's going on. I'm, people who are regular, I'm very aware that some people listen a lot to this and they're bored of hearing me say the same thing. But <laughs> since, it, since you brought it up, yeah, yeah, all right. Um, th this was born out of going to spoken word events. Uh, my my background is within fine arts, performing arts, where it's all about context. It's all about studying some form of art history as part of a degree. Mm. Um, I didn't go to university, but I was around and working with people that have been through that model. Yeah. And context was everything, especially with performance yeah. art. Some of it is completely inaccessible if you don't know your history, yeah. because it's so heavily reliant on yeah. you knowing. So it's a bit exclusionary in that sense, but it's, I, I like the idea that you are aware of those that came before you. And I didn't feel like it existed near, anywhere nearly enough within spoken word. Poetry, it does, but so often, like you just said, it's the hyper-visible ones mm. that get more and more credit. Yeah, I just felt like something needed to be done to just at least start laying people's voices down. Yeah. You know, and this is never, this is not a vehicle for me to become to get my name known, you know, this is this really is just about getting, giving people a chance to talk about their work. Going back to what you were just saying, it doesn't. You don't get on the BBC. Yeah, we'll just end up now for two minutes nodding and agreeing. But there are so many fantastically talented people, absolutely brilliant writers, and they will never get the coverage that they deserve yeah. because they don't fit the right boxes for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah. 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 Um, just for the listeners, there's a really cute cat staring at me through the window. It really put me off then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's Frankie. Um, Frankie is a, a cat who gives me company, particularly when um, the writing isn't going so well. And Frankie comes about and sits on my lap mm. and I just have to show, show her. 
Yeah, I suddenly got really self-conscious. I thought Frankie was ju- Frankie was looking at me like, "Don't, don't spin out that old rubbish Judge- again." Frankie does have a judgmental face. I mean, look, look, look at those eyes. Yeah. Oh, Fantastic. Yeah. We're running out of time, yeah. so we're going to finish on a reading. But just before we do, yeah. I want to mention that you're the co-founder of uh, Chill Pill with yes. Yes. and you've got a few things coming up, which will, it's too late to mention now because this podcast would have gone out. But where can people check that out? People can, if you're on Twitter, follow at Chillpill UK, um, and we're always putting up our net shows. Thanks very much for today, right? Yeah, thank No, oh, uh, just to, to okay. say, um, Chillpill is Mr. G, myself, Adam Camerling, Simon Mole, and Deanna Roger. There's five of Of course, us. it's a lot of you. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, I get confused because everyone's doing so many other things. Oh, right. yeah, yeah. We Speaking to quite... Deanna soon about come rhyme with me. Oh, like, brilliant. Yeah, so Fantastic. we're meeting up at some point in the future. So. Um, a lot of these names that you're hearing there will be turning up, I hope, soon, cool. or at least by the summer. Cool. Thank you, Ray. We'll finish with a reading, please. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, this poem, because I spoke about doing speech therapy, I wanted to write a poem um, or look at a form for a poem where I had to use every sound in the alphabet. Um, so I found this this form called Apicadarian, which is where the beginning of every line of the poem begins with alphabetically, so A, B, C, right through to Z. Also, this is a poem, it's, it's work in progress. The working title for it is Articulation Training. Accurately describing speech therapy would be difficult. Example, when the therapist cited the word emotion, I could define it in the way it was stabbed again and again with a pencil because I said e-mo-t-on, the sh never existed. Failure furnitured my mouth but there was so much gravity in grammar. I couldn't hold a hearing conversation dropping me inside a script of jumbled inner judgment, a jargon which knackered my brain with words too faint to learn. One art hard to master is the mud of noise in an echoey room. The s in optimistic never existed. I said option stick. My deaf way of clinging to positives, but I never quit quizzing what is quietly actual while reading fog patches of lips. When I learned sign, I spoke to deaf students who wished for greater deafness because tongues couldn't meet them on their own terms. This undid the universe we never understood as all vows were voice on our fingers. All words lost in whispers were woven by hand and held in facial expression as X's that marked mistakes exited my anxious existence. Yes, I speak now to my younger self who lost Z who does not yet know he has all the sound he needs to exist. Thank you very much, Ray. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And thank you to Frankie the Cat. Thanks, Frankie, giving me some company.